Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with uh, family and friends. I want to open the Bible today to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, verse 19. It's on page 920 if you're using the Bible there in the pew rack. If we've not met, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, hey, I want to say a couple of things uh, before we get into the text and into the message. I want to thank Trevor for leading worship this morning. Thank you, brother, for doing that. And he's done that in times in the past. This morning, uh, Craig Anderson, our worship pastor, is not here. He's in Texas with his family. He left early yesterday morning. On Friday, his father and mother both went into the hospital at separate times, different times during the day. Uh, His dad is going to have a a procedure tomorrow with a pacemaker, uh, and his mom is now in the care of hospice. And so let's pray uh, for Craig and for Kim and Uh, Greta and Lauren and their whole family. His brother was with his mom and dad for Thanksgiving and was there caring for them and doing all of that and then Craig needed to leave quickly and so we want to pray for them and I know uh, as one of the pastors I, I know that there are other people in the congregation who are hurting and who are experiencing difficulties physical difficulties of one kind or another. And uh, so why don't we join our hearts one more time in prayer and let's just bring our our cares to the Lord, all right, and trust them to him. Father in heaven, we are are grateful that we can come into your presence. I thank you for the video and for the reminder of the comforting presence that you give to us in the person of the Holy Spirit and through the word that we can know that you're with us. And that Lord Jesus, you promised to be with us always even to the ends of the earth. And Father, there are, there are families even in the room this morning that I know are in the midst of difficult times, facing hard decisions, walking through uh, tough moments. And uh, I pray that your comforting grace would be with them today. That even in the midst of a sermon that may not seem to apply particularly to our most urgent kinds of needs that we feel in our hearts that you would speak to us by your spirit. And Father, we pray for Craig and Kim, for his brother Danny and for his mom and dad particularly. And uh, Father, we pray that your grace would enable him, Craig in particular, to be all that he needs to be for his dad and mom. And as they make decisions and face decisions this week, we pray that you would be with them a special way, Lord. Thank you for a church family that can love them and surround them with love and care for them. And we're grateful for you, Lord Jesus, most of all, that you don't leave us, you don't forsake us, and we can look to you for help and know that you're with us always. And so we're grateful for that. We pray for our brother this morning. We pray that, uh, that uh, he would know your presence with him today. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Hey, well, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. We're gonna transition now, right, to the, to the message uh, Have you ever thought about this question? Where do churches come from? Where do churches come from? Uh, Has anybody ever asked you, you know, does the Bible say anything about how churches are started or how churches are planted? If you've ever been asked one of those two questions or maybe the question about, you know, well, who can be involved in starting a church? Who can be involved in planting maybe a new church? Would you know what to say to those questions? Would you know how to answer them? Do you think the Bible has anything to say about them? I I think that the Bible does, and we're going to see a glimpse of some of that this morning in this text here in in Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. So I'm going to just read the text for us this morning. We're going to read down through verse 30, and then we'll, we'll jump into it, all right? 
So Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. He says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, pause for a moment. This ought to remind you, or could remind you, of chapter 7, the latter part of chapter 7, where Stephen is martyred for his faith in Christ. And in chapter 8, when you turn that page and you see a man named Saul, a zealous young Pharisee, who's pressing persecution into the church, and the believers scatter out of the city of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And it's all because of this persecution. And yet, God is providentially at work because as you continue to read in chapter 8, you discover that as those believers leave the city... It says everywhere they went, they went preaching the gospel. They went preaching the word. And so he's kind of taking us. I know we're in, we've come to the end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, but now Luke is asking us to remember, hey, remember where we left this story of persecution and believers being scattered. Let me pick up that storyline again for us. And that's what he does here. And then he goes on in verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. These, these people who had been scattered and are now bringing the gospel into this city of Antioch. And, and a great many of those people believed. And when they believed, they turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? Acts chapter 4, a good guy, gave an offering to the church. We saw him again in chapter 9, taking in Saul and, and caring for him. There's, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. And he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul. Remember, Saul's had a, an epic change, a conversion in chapter 9. So he goes to Barnabas, he goes to Tarsus, he finds Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples, which was a common name for the followers of Jesus, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And if you go back and research first century history, you'll find that there were some terrible famines that occurred in that space of time while Claudius was reigning. And so the disciples determined there in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to his brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, I want to give you, before we dive into the text a little bit more, a little bit of a history of the very earliest days of Foothills Baptist Church. Where did this church come from? How did it start? What was the beginning of this church? We read the beginning of a church in Antioch. What about Foothills Baptist Church? In 1986, there was a man named Henry Smart. He was preaching on a particular Sunday at what is today known as Church on Mill. It's right across the street from the big uh, theater building there at ASU, right on, right on Mill Avenue. And in that sermon, he cast a vision for a church to be started in a new community in Phoenix, a newly developed area, the Awatuki Foothills. Four families from Church on Mill 
responded that day and some other families from other uh, Baptist congregations in the city. They all decided to meet. So they met at what was known as the Grace Inn here in Ahwatukee and they met to talk and to pray about starting a church here. That was 86. In 87, 21 people began gathering a meeting at Kyrene de la Kalina Elementary School. In 1988, the next year, the church constituted. If you don't know what that means, it just means they drew up some governing documents, had them approved, and they became known as Foothills Baptist Church with 51 original members. 51. In 1989, the next year, 51 people, mind you, around there, purchased these four acres for about $440,000. It's a deal in today's money, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more that could be told, a lot richer stories, deeper, and, and that kind of thing. But here's the point. Foothills Baptist Church exists. Why? Because a group of believers heard the word taught and heard a vision cast, and by the impression of the Holy Spirit, they chose to come and begin to get the gospel out to people who would become residents of this new place, this new area. They wanted to get the gospel to them, and so a church sprang up because of that. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and at the beginning of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 1, it, it tells us that his gospel, Luke's gospel, was written uh, to tell us all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up into heaven after his resurrection. The book of Acts is here in our Bibles to show us what Jesus continued to do and teach by the power and presence of his spirit in his church to get the gospel into the rest of the world. That's what Acts shows us and through acts we see the gospel moving from one group of people to the next to the next and as the gospel moves into new people churches begin to spring up churches are started or planted if you will and and if you'll let me i want to just kind of skip the stone across the early part of acts and just kind of show you how that begins to play out the gospel being unleashed in acts chapter two right you have peter he preaches on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and many thousands of people believe. All of those people were Jews. Now, they were from lots of different places around the world, the scriptures tell us there, but they were Jews. In Acts chapter 6, you have a man named Philip. He goes to Samaria, and he preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. They're part ethnically Jewish and and Gentile, they're, they're a mixed kind of race of people. They used to be Jews, and then they became a mixed race of people. There's a lot of history involved in all of that. Nonetheless, those people, many of them, start to believe. Now, they had basic understanding of the Old Testament texts. And then in Acts chapter 10, we saw this last week, you have Peter. And Peter is sent by the Lord to Cornelius, an Italian a Roman centurion, a Gentile to be sure, and yet he was a God-fearer. So he practiced a lot of the Jewish traditions. He was reading the scriptures, I'm sure. He was praying, he was giving alms, he was doing all those things. And he and his entire household believed those God-fearers. And Peter said he'd learned a lesson that what God had made clean, you should no longer call unclean, that God was welcoming the, the Gentiles. And when he got to Jerusalem, he had to convince those apostles and brothers there who were critical of what had happened initially and then in verse 18 you see that that they hear the story and they fell silent and they gave praise to God for what he was doing and so when we come to Acts 11 verse 19 we're seeing another shift 
It's like another stone has been tossed out into the pond and skipped because now an entirely new group of people have the gospel. A new city has the gospel. These Hellenists in the city of Antioch, 300 miles or so north of Jerusalem. This territory, this region is thoroughly Gentile. There are some Jews there, and you saw that in the text. But by and large, it's Gentile country. And these anonymous men go in there, and they share the gospel with these Hellenists. So God's done glorious things. He's worthy of praise. But this text is telling us that he's not finished yet. He's doing more to get the gospel out into the world. And so he's done that with these men. And these men engage these Hellenists. Who are these Hellenists? Well, they're they're not Greek-speaking Jews in this text. They're Greek-speaking Gentiles. There's a cultural tradition that goes along with who these people are. These people, they're as far from the temple, as far from Jerusalem, not just geographically, but culturally, spiritually. They're as far from Judaism as anybody. I mean, they are very different. They're very different from Cornelius even. Cornelius was a Gentile like them, but Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He was putting into practice some of those Old Testament teachings. They're very different people from Cornelius. Antioch, the city itself, is a very culturally diverse kind of place, ethnically diverse. About a half a million people live in that city. It's a big city for the first century. In fact, it's called the third city of the empire, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It sits on a river, not far from the mouth of the Mediterranean, so there's lots of travelers, lots of traders, there's a permanent residency there, many people there from all over the empire. There are a lot of languages being spoken in Antioch. But it's also a religiously pluralistic kind of city. Uh, You have the Jews who were there, and you saw that. Some of those scattered disciples went there, and they preached the gospel only to the Jews. And so you have the Jews who believe in the one true and living God and and believe that God created the world, and, and, and they're following that path. But then there are these Gentiles, these Greeks, who believe in wisdom and knowledge, and that's the way forward for humanity. And there are Romans there because it was a military outpost, and they believe basically in raw power. And then there are many, many people in this city because the city was surrounded and had within its own confines many temples. And so these people were worshiping many gods and had idols in their homes. If you wanted to put it this way, this this phrase, biblically illiterate, is used a lot of times. And so the people in Antioch were biblically illiterate. They were not so familiar with the story of Abraham or Moses or David or the words of Isaiah. They had a different view on creation, on marriage. They had a different view on work and what it was for and how you should go about it and on the purpose of a person's life and what life was about and on redemption, if there was such a thing. They believed in gods and demigods. They were simultaneously materialistic people and spiritual people. But they were above all things self-reliant people. And when God sent these nameless men into the city with the gospel, it says that a great many people believed. And when these people believed, the first multicultural, multi-ethnic church springs up in that place. And the followers of Jesus are given a new identity. They're called Christian. Christians, little Christ, for the first time. And notice the order. The gospel goes in, 
and the church follows. The gospel goes in and then a church is planted or a church is born. There's no verse in the Bible, by the way, that tells us to plant a church. Jesus never commanded us to plant a church. So what's up, right? Why are we here? Why 32 years ago did a group of believers, a group of disciples of Jesus, decide to plant a church in the Abatuki foothills? Why was the church planted here in Antioch 2,000 years ago? Why, why did that happen? Here's why it happened. Because the Bible shows us that churches are started out of a disciple-making process. That's how churches come to be. When you're making disciples, churches follow. But one precedes the other. In, in, in the book of Acts, as you read through it, and you see it certainly in the rest of the New Testament, it's true for this church as well. Churches and aren't planted by just shuffling believers around from one place to the next. It's not like we want to take this section right here and plant a church at the end of the cul-de-sac out here, and we're going to ask all of you to start going out there on Sunday mornings. That's not necessarily church planting, at least not as we see it modeled in the scriptures. It's different from that. It comes out of disciple-making efforts among new people. It's about the disciples of Jesus, to use Jesus' words, going into the harvest, going into the fields, and sowing the gospel and the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Like the, like the passage says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The Holy Spirit works in people's lives, and, and people are transferred. They're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And a church is born. People are gathered into a local community of believers. That's what's going on here in Antioch. That's what God's doing in this place. Churches are born out of disciple-making activities. So what's the process look like? Let me, let me give you some bullets here. The process, the gospel is shared with unreached people. We see that going on in this text. People who are not yet Christians, the gospel goes into them. And then disciples are made. They're taught. They're instructed. Barnabas is there exhorting them. He goes and he gets Saul and they teach them. And so disciples are made and disciples are gathered together into a church. It's not as if these people are just coming to faith and they live in their separate homes and they're going about their separate individual lives. But someone decides we're going to gather up all of these Christians and we're going to start meeting together. And so they, they gather them together into a church. And now you have the church in Jerusalem here, and the church in Antioch here. And if you read through the New Testament, what do you have? The church at Philippi and the church at Ephesus and the church in Thessalonica, on and on. And then they have elders. You saw that in verse 30. Barnabas and Saul take that offering to the elders, the church in Jerusalem. What are the elders, the pastors of the churches come from? They come from the people, the people who hear the gospel, the people who believe the gospel, the people who are discipled and instructed. And somewhere along the way, they become elders or pastors in the churches. That's where they, where they come from. And so biblically speaking, we see God getting the gospel to an unreached group of people through these anonymous witnesses. And in time, a church springs up in that place. It, it's gathered together in that place. And if you share the gospel in an unreached people group and you begin to gather them, what's a church supposed to look like? Should it look like this? Uh, can it look different? Can it be a smaller expression of this? Can it meet in a home? Could it meet in an apartment? Could it meet in a, in a place of business? What's the church supposed to look like? If you concentrate again on the, on the passage, it tells us what the church is supposed to be. I want to give you this statement, and then we'll just kind of walk, walk through it, right? The church is people 
with a clear identity as disciples and as the local church committed to obeying the teachings of Jesus. The church's people with a clear identity as disciples and as a local church committed to obeying the teachings of the Lord Jesus. That's what you see in this text. In verse 22, you you see that there are these people, the Jews and then the Hellenists, and they're coming to faith in Jesus. They're coming to faith in Christ. The report of this came in verse 22 to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So there are people that make up these churches. I don't mean for it to be simplistic, but there's a deep theological premise at work here, and it ought to affect the way that we speak. Because if we were to walk into Antioch in the first century, within a few weeks of this going on, you and I are used to saying something like, hey, meet me at the church at 10 o'clock tomorrow. But if you said that to one of them, they probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. The truth of the matter is that church probably met in different locations from one week to the next to the next, depending on where they decided to gather. They hadn't built a church building at that point, not yet. And so they wouldn't get it. They, they wouldn't think of the church as a place or a facility. They thought of the church as people, and that's the biblical definition of what a church is. The church is people, people who've come to identify themselves as disciples, clearly, right? The, the church is made up of people who are followers of Jesus. These are people who had, who had turned to the Lord. You saw that in, in verse 26 and verse 29. They're, they're known as Christians. Their lives have changed to a radical degree, and they clearly identify as the local church. There are those who are part of the church in Jerusalem, and now these people who are part of this church here in Antioch. When Paul writes letters through the New Testament, most of your New Testament are letters from Paul, not to individual believers, but to churches. So you have Philippians and Thessalonians and First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, all of those letters written to uh, local churches gathered in those, in those cities. And so the church's people with a clear identity as disciples of Jesus, a clear identity as the local church in a particular place. You even get to Revelation. John writes Revelation, right? He writes to the church of Philadelphia and Smyrna and Thyatira. It goes on and on. You see this through the New Testament, and, then, and, and we see that the church is committed to obeying the teachings of the Lord Jesus. How do we know we have a church? Well, it's a group of people who clearly identify themselves as disciples of Christ and as a local church, and they are committed to obeying the teachings of the Lord Jesus. You see that in verse 23 where Barnabas is sent up there from the church in Jerusalem, and he's encouraged by the grace of God, and he starts to exhort them and to teach them. And to exhort really means to be, really to be called alongside of someone and to call them out to a particular way of living life. And that's what Barnabas was doing. It's, I think it's a very personal level of discipleship that's going on. That's what Barnabas was doing with these people. And then you have what he does later when he goes and he finds Saul and he brings him. He travels about 100 miles to the north. He gets Saul, brings him back, and they teach the church. They teach many of those people, a little more formal kind of teaching. One thing that you get from this for certain is that at the core of a church is the teaching of the scriptures. It ought to make you think back to Acts chapter 2 when it talks about the earliest church and how the people devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. That's the linchpin of a church. And so you see that happening here. So what is a church? The church is the people identifying themselves as disciples of Jesus as a local church committed to obeying the teachings of the Lord Jesus from the scriptures. In other words, it's not enough just to say, well, I believe in Jesus and I was baptized out there. 
somewhere. It's not enough to just say that. It's about obeying the teachings of Jesus, about having your life and your heart shaped by what Christ taught. And that's what Barnabas was doing. That's what Saul was doing there. Now, there's nothing in this text. You're probably thinking, well, there are a couple of obvious things missing, right? Like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do the Lord's Supper later in the service here. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Neither one of those things are mentioned here. Those are key parts of what makes a church. They're missing here. Uh, that's not a big deal. Uh, again, not, not at this point in the story of Acts. Let, let me give you a, a reason why, right? Television, right? It's changed a lot, hasn't it? Has anybody binged watched anything lately? Go ahead. I won't shame you too badly. Yeah, there you go. So we binge watch things now, right? You, you get it on Netflix or whatever it is, and, and you watch a program. And remember in the olden days, those of you that remember black and white TVs, you know, the, you used to watch a program and you'd see it on Tuesday at 8 o'clock and you had to wait until next Tuesday at 8 o'clock to get the resolution of that cliffhanger from the previous episode. You don't have to do that anymore. Wait 10 seconds, the next episode will load up. <laughs> oh, sorry, I betrayed myself right there, didn't I? Yeah, that's, that's the way it happens, right? And so this story is, is ongoing. It, it's, it's continuing. And as Luke is writing, and you come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, he's assuming that you didn't parachute in to this text and to that verse. He's assuming you know the story as it's already been written, and you will have seen in Acts chapter 2 with all of those new believers that they followed in believers' baptism. There was baptism. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching, and they came together for the breaking of bread and fellowship to practice the Lord's Supper. Those things were all part and parcel of the church. They're just not all enumerated for us right here in this text. But those two markers, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they were markers for who belongs to Jesus. They were for people who had come to faith in Christ. Now, if that's what a church is, what does the text show us about where churches come from? Where do churches come from? Here's a, here's a long statement, right? Churches come from the grace of God. They come from the grace of God, working through disciples, sharing the gospel with unreached peoples through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they gather and teach those new disciples how to follow Jesus as the church. That's what a church is. That's where they come from. And so in verse 23, Barnabas goes up there to Antioch. He's sent there by those people in Jerusalem, and he's encouraged. Why? You saw it there, right? He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. I, I love that. This passage is all about divine initiative. It is about the work that God is doing. And I told you this before, and I've told you repeatedly. That's what the book of Acts is. It is about what God is doing in the world to unleash the gospel by the power of the Spirit through his church into the world. That's what Acts is about. And that's what God is doing in this place. He's taking initiative. Don't you love that verse? You're familiar with it. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. What did he do? That he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's God taking the initiative. It's God taking the initiative. He, he loved us. He demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The story of salvation and the story of churches being planted begins with the grace of God and how God graciously takes the initiative to save sinners and to gather them as his people in local expressions of the body of Christ that's worldwide. 
And so that's what we see. So the salvation of any individual person and the planting of any church is all about God's initiative by grace. And then at the same time, it's about his grace working through the lives of disciples who are sharing the gospel. And we saw that in verses 19 and 20. Now in Acts, we've seen Peter do that. He's an apostle, so it would seem, you know, that seems right. An apostle ought to be sharing the gospel and teaching, that kind of thing. Then you see Philip and Stephen doing the same thing. They were everyday followers of Jesus, and yet they're out there sharing the gospel. They're, they're servant leaders in the church. We saw that in Acts chapter 6. We can say, okay, well, that's, a, that's another level. That's why they were doing that. Well, what do you do about these guys, these unnamed, anonymous witnesses, all of them, some of them speaking to the Jews only, and these men who come from Cyprus and Cyrene and spoke to the Hellenists? What about these people whose names are lost forever to church history? What about them? I'll tell you what that, that teaches me. It teaches me that any one of us who's a disciple of Jesus ought to be sharing the good news of Christ with other people and that when we share the gospel and we make disciples, God can start a church which would tell me that you don't need a degree or any kind of special dispensation from anyone necessarily to see a church start, that God can use us all to see the church made because churches begin out of disciple-making activities and all of us just like these unnamed men are called to make disciples. And you see they're proclaiming the gospel to unreached people in verses 19 and 20, these Gentiles. We've talked about these Hellenists being so culturally distant and different from everyone else. And, and we know that the, today the gospel still needs to cross significant cultural barriers for people to hear it and understand it. That's what the video was all about. Not only does the gospel need to get to the Japanese people but there are homeless people in Japan. And very much like the United States, people who are homeless are ostracized. They're at the margins. They're outcasts. Not many people take the time to stand and talk with a homeless person, to engage them in a conversation, to get to know them, to hear their story, to befriend them at some level, if it's possible, to perhaps even share the good news of Christ with them. But that was what was happening. That's what we saw in the video. And that's what we see happening here in Antioch. It's the reason why we partner with people who, who do that kind of work in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, or in Indonesia. It's why we go four hours south and cross the border into Mexico, and we build homes, and we take translators so that we can share the good news of Christ with people who are going to own that home, or their friends or family who come and gather and see the spectacle of those folks coming to build that little house. If you want information on how to participate in any of those kind of projects, there's going to be some in the foyer for you today for 2020 as we go to those places. We'd love for you to be part of that and pray for that. You can pray for that kind of work using that uh, prayer guide that you got this morning. Next Sunday's our, our Give Sunday for international missions. We would love for you to be part of that by giving, by praying, by, by going. Did you know that the United States is the home to the third largest uh, the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. The third largest number of unreached people groups in the world are right here in the United States. And so, speaking of the Japanese people, we have a group of ladies in our church who teach English to other Japanese women who live in our community. It started with one lady, and it spread out, and now there's a bunch of our gals who are involved in that and they're befriending these ladies and teaching them English. They want to learn it and they're teaching them and through those relationships and through those lessons, they're sharing the gospel, not just with those women, but with their husbands, with their kids, with their families. People are hearing the gospel. 
It's a big cultural divide, to be sure. But wouldn't you pray that the gospel would reach their hearts, that Jesus would become real to them, that the spirit would open them and draw them to faith in Christ? And perhaps we would begin to see disciples being made from among these Japanese women. Many of them will go home to Japan with their families. They're here working, their husbands are working on a contract for a year or two or whatever, and they'll, they'll go back. But some of them don't want to go back. Some of them want to stay, and they'll get a visa, and they'll stay. Perhaps God would plant a church among them and use us to do that. There are other kinds of cultural gaps or divides across which the gospel needs to go. I mean, we can name a lot of different kinds of things, and not just uh, ethno-linguistic kinds of things. There are cultural gaps. We're doing angel tree again. We do that every year. There are prisoners. The, the, the criminal justice system, prisons are full of people incarcerated for one crime or another. There are chaplains in prisons who I'm sure most of them do their very best. But I'm sure they wouldn't turn down someone coming alongside and helping them. That's the reason why that ministry called Prison Fellowship exists. It's another group of people who need to hear the gospel. I I could go on and on there, but I'll, I'll save us some time. Churches come from the grace of God at work in the hearts of disciples, sharing the gospel, proclaiming Christ to unreached peoples. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, verse 24, I I love these verses. It it, it says, the hand of the Lord was with him and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It says, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. If If you go to the beginning of the book of Acts in your Bible, it will probably say the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason for that latter name because from Acts chapter two through the rest of the book, the book of Acts is a perpetual demonstration of what God was doing by his spirit through his church in the world to get the gospel to people. And we can't share the gospel. We can't see people come to faith apart from the work of the spirit. We need the spirit working in us and we need the spirit to draw people to faith in Jesus. I read this recently. John Stott said this. Nothing closes the mouth like the secret poverty of our spiritual lives. Nothing closes the mouth like the secret poverty of our spiritual lives. In other words, apart from the Holy Spirit warming your heart with a love for Christ and for people who need him, apart from the Spirit pressing an urgency into your life for people who need Jesus, for people to see the glory of Christ, and to come to know him personally. Apart from that happening, the gospel will remain bottled up inside of you. It will remain bottled up inside of the church. Nothing closes the mouth like the secret poverty of our spiritual lives. If you've not shared the gospel in a very long time, it might mean that there's a poverty in your spiritual life that's at work. And the main thing that you need to hear today is that you need the filling of the Spirit and to walk in that and trust that you have the Spirit's presence in you as a believer in Christ and he will fill you and use you to make the gospel known to people. Churches come from the grace of God, working through disciples, proclaiming the gospel of God to unreached peoples in the power of the Spirit and they gather and teach those believers how to walk with Jesus as a local expression of the church. Jesus commissioned us not to make converts, but to make disciples. He said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Uh, We see Barnabas and we see Saul 
doing that, teaching that, disciple-making. Then we see this man come from Jerusalem, Agabus, this prophet, and he predicts this famine that's going to come. There's nothing in the text that tells us that after he ended that famine uh, prophecy that he said, all right, now we're going to take an offering. There's nothing there that tells us that. So we will be assuming uh, that it's there. And I'm not sure that it is there. What I think the text is trying to tell us and communicate to us is, is to show us that when they decided each one of them would give as they were able, that the work of the Holy Spirit was going on in their hearts. They heard this prophecy from the Lord by the Spirit through Agabus, and they began to make decisions about how they would now live their life. Maybe they started to make decisions about how their shopping list would be different that next week or how their life would be different over the course of the next month so that they would be enabled to give to those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were in need. Following Jesus isn't just about growing in knowledge about the Bible and what's there. It's about the truth of the gospel sinking down so deep into our hearts that it changes the way we live, the way we think every single day. It changes the way and it shapes the way we decide, hey, who are we going to date? How will we date? Who will we marry? How should we be married? It changes the way you work on your job and the way you relate to your employer or to your employees. How you respond in being forgiving to someone who's wounded you or forgiving or asking someone to forgive you for the words that that you've said. Being a Christian means living out the teachings of Jesus. That's what he's telling us. Many years ago, I heard someone say this, that you know when a Hindu family has really and truly come to faith in Christ because they cleanse their home of idols and altars. You know when a Muslim family has truly come to faith in Jesus Christ because they allow themselves to be baptized publicly and they begin to share the gospel with their family and their neighbors and their friends. I think one of the evidences that these Hellenistic believers had truly come to faith in Christ and that the gospel was sinking down into their hearts was that it was evidenced by their love for their Jewish brothers and sisters whom they'd never met, who, who were very culturally different from them, very different. I don't know that we can even begin to understand how different these people were from one another. And yet, the Holy Spirit, by the scriptures, taught them to give to them and to love them and to meet their needs as best they could. Churches come from the grace of God, working through disciples who share the gospel to unreached people in the power of the Holy Spirit and who gather them and teach them to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus as a local church. This morning, uh, one of the ways that I want us to just apply this text and think it through is as we take the Lord's Supper together. And so we pass the bread and the cup this morning thinking about his sacrifice, the table, and we don't come to the table in this church, we pass the elements to you. I think there's something special about coming to the table, but we're we're gonna pass those elements to you. It's a witness to the sufficiency of Jesus, and that's what we see throughout Acts, and that's what we see in this text. Jesus ascended into heaven, but he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is at work in all of our hearts as believers in Christ, and he longs to fill us and use us for the purposes of God in the world. And so as we come to the table, we come as believers in Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Christ, then these elements are for you. You should take the bread and the cup, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then you should just let them pass, because in taking them, it's really... It's really a statement of faith on your behalf. 
You're saying, I'm trusting alone in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of my sins, and I've made that public. If you haven't done that, just let the elements pass. Guys, you can go ahead and pass them, and I'll direct the congregation to take them in just a moment. This morning, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will do something unique in our, in our hearts today, and perhaps as you take these elements and just wait there for a moment and pray, then he would speak to you about these things. Maybe meditate on the fact that as a result of his grace, the the very spirit of God lives within you. He lives within you. And so, don't put any confidence in the flesh. That's what the scriptures tell us. Don't put confidence in the flesh. Are you facing decisions? Are, Are you struggling with the difficulty in your life? Is there a problem and you're working really hard on it and you wanna get it solved? Don't put any confidence in the flesh. Don't put any confidence in the flesh that you can live this life as a Christian apart from the empowering enablement of God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Turn away from everything that's self-effort and trust fully in the Spirit that Jesus sent. It's the Spirit who gives life. Meditate on this, that, that you'd be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? When you think about it, you look for for it in the scriptures. Mostly, the Bible teaches us that there are evidences of a person who's been filled with the Spirit. More than, this is how you are filled with the Spirit. Do one, two, and three, and it happens. The evidence that you've been filled with the Spirit, the evidence that these Hellenists were filled with the Spirit was their generosity towards their brothers and sisters. And so maybe that's it for you. There's a spirit of generosity in your life. There's a spirit of joy in your life for what Christ has done the filling of the Spirit. Maybe there's a a desire to love Christ more and more, that that your life is really warm with a love for Jesus and a love for others who need Jesus. That you want to follow him no matter what the cost is, no matter the risk of relationships. That you'd be filled with the Spirit, that, that the tangible expressions of faith in Jesus would be evident in your life. And that the Spirit would fill you with an urgency for the name and the glory of Jesus to be known in our church, in our community, and to the nations. Let's just take a few moments to to pray and think about that.